Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon on the book of Revelation. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you for a favor. I know that many of you listen to our sermons on some type of podcast player, like Apple or Spotify. If that is you, it would be great if you take a minute to leave us a rating or review. I know that it might seem like a small or inconsequential thing, but it really can make a big difference. Why? Because every time you leave a rating or review, it helps our sermons be heard by more people. People who have the potential to be impacted by Jesus through the preaching of our church. This actually happens. I can think of people right now that have helped who've had an eating disorder, struggles with their in-laws, and sadness from a miscarriage. These are real people that have reached out because they've heard one of our sermons online. So while leaving a rating or review might seem like no big deal to you, it can be a big deal to those that helps hear our sermons. So again, if you're listening to this via a podcast player, please take a minute to leave us a rating or review. Thanks for listening to this sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today's passage of scripture fits me really well because it's about victory and I love victory. And if you've been around a while, you know that I, I, um, I like winning. I like winning a lot. I don't like competing as it turns out. I just like winning. Uh, that's what I've learned about myself through the years and you can't win unless you compete. And I'll tell you how deep it runs. I'm gonna start, I did this last week and, and I thought why'd I do that but I'm gonna do it again anyway. I'm gonna start with the, the heavier illustration of how much I like winning and then I'll go to the lighter ones. Um, but I, uh, when I was nine years old, my parents went through a custody battle and there was a, a lady that, that would kind of come and, and I know her name, but I don't know her technical title, but she would examine us in home and she w- came to my school and, and then she would, she, I went to her place and she interviewed me and then she gave a recommendation to the judge at the end of it. That's whatever that's called. Some of you may know what that's called, but whatever she, uh, a, a possum, I don't think it's called a possum. Uh, a casa. Uh, I don't think, not quite a casa, no. Um, but, uh, but yes, but um, not a possum either, as it turns out. Um, but uh, maybe something in the middle of those two things. But uh, she said to me once, I remember her saying, she said, who do you want, who do you, what do you want to happen? That's how, it was an open-ended question. And, and I said, I, I want, um, I want this person to win. I'll just say it that way. And she said, does it have to be winning and losing? And I looked at this lady and I said, yeah, I'm nine years old. I said, there is always a winner and loser in life. Just like that, I remember it like this. And she probably thought, wow, none of these people should get this kid. Uh, They've ruined him already. But I was like, there has to be a winner and a loser. And I've always seen the world this way. And victory to me, is so sweet. I feel it so deeply. There is no feeling like beating somebody else. Uh, I'll tell you, in sixth grade, we had the opportunity. Uh, we, so I played tournament team basketball. We traveled. We played 72 games a year. But then we play in our little hometown league, Kaiser Youth Basketball Association, KYBA. And uh, two of the best players on our traveling team, two of the guys that I played with and started, they were on the green team. We were the red team. We were second place. They were undefeated. We had lost three games. It's the last game of the season, so we can't win the championship of this league. But boy, oh boy, did we want to win. And I will never forget, like, we just 
beat up on this kid named Bobby. Like we stole the ball every time from him, who wasn't one of my tournament team players. We just stole the ball, went down. People are yelling. I remember Brian's sister, Twin Ann. Uh, he was on my. He was on the other team. She's just screaming. Like she's so angry. And I, I still like when I love seeing Brian and Ryan and thinking about. Wow, remember the green team? You were almost undefeated, but we won that game. I had the privilege the other day, we have a, a young adults Bible study at our house on Monday nights, and, and I, have, I have almost every game from my senior year basketball season. They ended up in my hands on DVD. You can barely tell who's who because television, video recording was not the same, but if you look real hard and squint, you can tell I'm on there. And, uh, and uh, after uh, our Bible study, maybe three, four weeks ago, um, one of the kids, I don't know what came over them, but it was one of the happiest moments of my life. They said, they said, I want to see one of your games. And I happened to have them, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, on the mantle. I was like, hey, we can do that right now. Like, they're right here. Um, I had them out because I was feeling nostalgic. And anyway, so I get them out, and they sat through this Beaverton game with me. It was the game to get in the state tournament. Um, Beaverton had not missed the state tournament, and uh, it was only four A's, but top-level basketball. They had not missed the state tournament in 23 years, and, and frankly, they were probably a bit better than us. We've always said through the years, me and my teammates, if we would have played them 10 times, they would have won six, but you know what happened on that day? They didn't win. We did, and I watched this game with these young adults, and I felt all of it. You know, I just, I told them, I said, well, at the end, a kid on the other team is going to take off a shirt and throw it on the ground and it's one of my favorite moments I've ever lived through um, because we had won and he rips it off and spins it and throws it after he missed a three to tie it and I, it feels so good to watch and relive and feel what we felt in that moment and I say all this because I just want to tell you um, about the no I'm just like I, there is a point here right there is a point and today's uh, passage of scripture in the book of Revelation is one of the easy ones one of the fun ones one of the exciting ones one of the ones that you look forward to preaching and not like how am I gonna teach that you know it, it's one of those heavenly scenes that we get in the book of Revelation and it is really about how we are going to celebrate our victory in eternity it's about how we are victorious and how we will celebrate that victory. And I'll just give you a hint right up front. When we get the victory of heaven, when we win the final battle, in fact, we will know that we didn't win it, but Jesus won it for us. And here's what celebration is going to look like. It's going to look like worshiping Jesus as we recognize that it was him who gave us the victory. And so I, I wanted to tell you those stories because, because as we think about this, man, I think these kind of eternal things can seem so far away. But when the Bible, and it does this, I mean, I, I taught, I think I had a trophy. By the way, I brought a trophy just to symbolize it. But I, I, I think I did this when I preached through the book of Revelation, or the book of Romans, excuse me, because this language is all over the New Testament that we who are Christians will have victory. We are going to feel the, the great greatness of victory in eternity and this passage says look you're going to have that and here's how you will respond here's revelation 15 1 it says i saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them god's wrath 
is completed. Now you're like, wait, this is about wrath. And, and this is a setup, our passage, for uh, a lot more talk about wrath that we'll cover in you know, the next couple of weeks. Um, but first, there's this interlude. And, and so when you read verse 1, it's a setup. But I do want to point your attention to that word sign right there. Uh, Matt, who's sitting over here, he preached a series called Miracles at our church a few years back, and he talked a lot about how miracles in the Bible, it's synonymous with signs, same Greek word, and, and how they're never done in a vacuum, that, that these miracles that we see in the life of Jesus and otherwise, they're always meant to point us to God, to God's existence or to something about God. That's what the miracles are for. Sometimes I think, you know, as uh, modern day Americans, we can, in our Christianity, we can, we can be too caught up and just wanting to see miracles and forgetting about what the point of a miracle is. What's the point of a sign? It's to point people to God. Robert Mount said, these are the last of the plagues, talking about this, in that they complete the warnings of God to an impatient world. All that remains is final judgment itself. And in all of it, we see that God is still, in the recording of this, trying to point us to himself. Like I said this, and I just want to iterate it, I think it's so important, but like all of this talk and language of destruction and judgment and justice and punishment, it's not there because God just you know, wants to make people feel bad. It's not there to scare Christians. It's there to call people to repentance. They're there to point people to God, his existence and his gospel, the story of Jesus dying for the sins of people and to call people to come into a relationship with him. I think that's so, like that needs to be out there maybe every week. I need to say that when we talk about judgment and some of that stuff, which we aren't going to do very much today, but in this setup passage, as we're gonna move into the, the seven bowls of God's judgment, we need to remember that it's all there in order to point people to God, to call people to repentance. Now, here's what we read. This is the part that's like so beautiful. If you're a Christian, just let it sweep over you. This is the victory. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass with fire and standing beside, beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast in its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship before you, for, you are right, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What a cool scene, right? Like, here is a picture of God's people, and they're standing on the sea of glass, which we've seen before. This sea of glass probably points in some ways to, to God's separation from from people that God is, it's already been encountered and it's like God is, you know, in some ways far from us but here the victorious, they are nearer to God, right? Like they're standing on the sea that moves towards his presence and there's fire which maybe reminds us of how God purifies us and how God ultimately will purify us. We will be made perfect when we enter into his kingdom and, and so here's this scene in the midst, what does he refer to Christians as? Those who have been victorious, who have won against the beast. Now, if you don't remember, the beast is, is a 
political, or there's two beasts in the book of Revelation. One is a political leader, one is a religious leader. And I want to remind you that they are given their power by Satan. They speak like Satan, and they lead people to worship Satan. And so here, when it says that these people, we, who are Christians, have, have been victorious over the beast, really we have been victorious over Satan and what Satan wants to do in our lives, and that is pull us away from the God of the universe in a relationship with him. That's Satan's ultimate goal it's to take the worship that rightfully belongs to God and receive it for himself that's what he's trying to get you and I to do every single day it seems and so these people victorious standing on a glassy sea with flames around them I love that picture it's like they're standing on the podium right like they got the win right they've they have been victorious and by the way, this word victorious, it comes out many times in the book of Revelation. At the very beginning of Revelation, a part of the, of the book that I didn't preach on in this time through because I preached on it a handful of years ago, there's these, these letters, these words to the churches. And often in these words to the churches, it includes this phrase, to the one who is victorious. And then Jesus will say what he's going to give them, what the reward is going to be. And now we see the gathered church having final Victory. And by the way, this word victorious isn't just used at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It's used 17 times in the book. It's a common and important theme that if we commit our lives to Jesus and embrace his story, his salvation that he offers, then we will win. We're going to get a trophy. And now it's not called a trophy in the book of Revelation. It's called a crown. And we see that because we recognize that we didn't just work hard enough or play hard enough or whatever, that we're going to throw those crowns, those trophies at Jesus' feet in honor and worship of him. And that's what's happening in this passage. The celebration, as it so often is in our society today, isn't one where we go, look what I did, look at how great I am, but instead the celebration is one where we go, look how great he is, look at what he did in my life. I wanna say it again, there's nothing for me better than victory, and I keep saying it because maybe some of you, you just, I don't know, you like singing songs and you don't understand the thrill of victory, but there's just nothing like it. I, I heard this week is Super Bowl Sunday today, so perfect timing, right? Uh, and Joe Montana was making the rounds on, uh, on sports radio, and I hadn't listened to sports radio in a while, but I happened to be listening to sports radio, and every time there was a commercial and I turned it to the next station, Joe Montana was on again. So I just kept hearing from Joe Montana. And uh, uh, that day, an article had been written about... Um, about him and, and how Tom Brady, who has more Super Bowl wins, is now considered the greatest about how uh, he's really bothered by that and he doesn't, that's not something that you know sits easily with him. And, and so they say, hey, this article came out. Is that true? Does Tom Brady live in your head? It was a really straightforward question for a sports radio question with a great, usually it's like, who do you think's gonna win or whatever, but it's like, is that true? And he, it, was a, it was an amazing yes answer where he never said yes, but he got so political. He's like, well, you know, it's not about Tom, but I just think back sometimes about how great we were and I left for another team and I do think about how many more Super Bowls we could have won. He might as well just said, yeah, Tom Brady lives inside my head and I hate that he won more than me and, and I, if I could go back in time, I would have played till I was 90 in order to have more Super Bowl victories and I, I want you to see it through Joe Montana's eyes, like how good victory is because that's a guy that gets it. He gets it. Winning is so fun. 
Losing stinks, winning is fun. And here, when Revelation describes what we get to experience as Christians, the confetti is falling and we're raising our trophies in celebration. That's how the book of Revelation wants you to think about what you will feel and experience in eternity. And look, I know we all struggle along right now, right? Like some days it doesn't feel like we will have victory. Some days you feel like I do when I'm watching my kids play sports. Um, I thought, I thought that I would be able to like shut off this desire to be better than everybody when there's a ball involved. But um, after my daughter's first t-ball game, I, uh, I think I told you this, but, but I mean, we just got just, it wasn't T-ball, sorry, coach pitch. It was, we just got thoroughly outplayed by the stupid purple team. And I'm looking over and, um, and, and stupid purple team has a bunch of like my ex-teammates on it. And so we're losing them. And it just, it bothered me the whole season. Like, I, and we're just doing stupid stuff. And I'm, I'm just holding it. I'm just, try, I'm just trying to be like this, right? It's okay. They're six years old. <laughs> Nobody cares, right? Like it's gonna be okay. And, and like a week later, I'm talking to one of the parents, and these parents actually, just so you know, I'm a nice guy. They actually re- reached out a couple days ago and said, are you coaching again? Because they want their daughters on, on my team again. But uh, one of them looked at me and said, you know what the best part of the first game was? Watching your face the whole game. Because <laughs> I am just trying to be positive and thinking, throw the ball to first base, not left field. <laughs> Abby, you know, it's not a real girl on our team, but that's how I'm feeling. And sometimes we feel that way in this life, right? Like, where it's a, it's a struggle and, and she's now playing, Hazel's playing basketball and I just, just the other day, uh, you know, we, I, I had missed her game because I was coaching my son and, and so I watched the video of it and it was so bad, this game. We played so awfully and, and I was like, mad and I showed up to practice the next day and another ex-teammate is like middle of the practice like Chad's feeling real salty today like I was not in the mood to be messing around in this practice with these seven-year-old girls like did you see what happened and that's how that is the feeling like that rain the motions right of a Christian now where you're like jumping up because you know your kid got a hit and then you're like how is it ever going to get better? And we feel like in my daily life, right? Like last week, I, funny enough, on, on Sunday, I was driving home and I hadn't felt very good about how much I had prayed the week before. And I thought, I, I think I even said to God, like, I'm going to have my best prayer week, you know, this week. And I had an awful prayer week this week. You know, it's the up and the down and the try and the fail and the succeed and all of it. But someday, what the book of Revelation wants you to know is that you will have final, eternal victory and it will no longer be a roller coaster of emotion we will just just feel the goodness of God and the good that he did for us I love knowing that and and I hope you do too and here's the thing Satan will not win the battle against Jesus even though he wants to. Revelation 17 14 says the lamb shall overcome same word Jesus will have his victory. Jesus will have his victory. Even though Satan is fighting, he's going to lose. And here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you can be sure that you too will be victorious. Jesus will overcome and Jesus will help you overcome for eternity. The book is written, I've been over this, 
you hopefully know this by now if you've been around, but the point of the book of Revelation is to help those who are struggling with outside pressure and internal rejections of godly truth to keep going. The, the point of the book of Revelation is to help you serve God when it's hard, to keep serving Jesus when it gets really hard. And here's the good news, right? Like when you know victory is coming, it's a lot easier to keep going in the hard moments. I don't like telling you this, but I was on a 14-game losing streak in college once. 14 games. Blew one of those games all by myself. Uh, going home when I shouldn't have gone home. It was embarrassing. It was awkward. I'll tell you what. Going to practice when you're on a 10-game losing streak, not cool, right? Like you stub your toe and you're like, I'm good. Like I don't know if I need to be out there with the rest of you. It's hard to keep going when you don't feel like you're ever going to taste victory again. I know that. But when you know that victory is coming, you can push through the hard stuff. Oh, my finger hurts, I'll keep going. Oh, it's hard to break this addiction, I'll keep trying. Oh, it's hard to be nice to that person that you know, pushes all the wrong buttons in my life. I know I'll have victory someday, so I'm going to keep trying. I'm gonna keep striving, and I'm gonna keep working. I'm gonna keep going for Jesus. I'm gonna keep praying. I'm gonna keep trying to have my best prayer week. You know, like I'm gonna keep trying to do that because someday I'm gonna raise the trophy in victory, and then I'm gonna put it at Jesus' feet knowing it's him who gave me that victory. And by the way, how do you get victory? That's a question that the book of Revelation answers for us. Revelation 12, 11, we've already looked at this. It says they triumphed over him. They had victory, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How, how did we get the victory? How do we get the victory? We, we turn to Jesus. We turn to Jesus. We believe that we are sinners, that Jesus allowed for himself to be killed, his blood to be shed on our behalf, and we embrace that, we believe in that, and we give our lives to him. Notice the word of our testimony. We give our lives to Jesus. We choose to follow Jesus, and we do that in such a way that we will even die for him. We give our lives to Jesus, and we recognize what he did on our behalf, and then we will have victory. They triumphed, or they were victorious same word, by the blood of the lamb. And by the way, by the way, if you're like, I don't think you've thought of this, but I thought of it for you, ready? Like Easter's coming, right? And hopefully you're inviting people to church and you're like, man, I really don't want them to show up and, and we're just having the doom and gloom sermon, right? Like I don't, and then the next week, you know, we, we talk about the resurrection for one Sunday and then Chad's gonna be right back to talking about torture the next week. Like if you're thinking about that, I want you to know on Easter, I'm going to preach about the resurrection, shocker. Um, and then the next week, we're gonna move into our final kind of sub-series in the book of Revelation, which is all about what eternal victory is going to look like for us. It's about our eternal state in the glorious heavenly presence of Jesus. And by the way, in the midst of that, Revelation 21, seven, it says, those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. I mean, it's this passage about no more tears and no more sorrow and it's using all of this heavenly language to describe this wonderful place that we will get to experience. It's beautiful and it's centered on God's presence and it's perfect and we don't deal with sorrow anymore, death or pain or suffering or all of those things. And in the middle of it, it reminds us that this is for those who are victorious. We'll get all of it. I love that. And so we will celebrate. But how will we celebrate? Well, here it says that we will celebrate 
through song. Here is these triumphant, victorious Christians. They all have harps. I really hope I just show up in heaven and I get to know how to play the harp. I don't want to learn it. I'm like, I just want to show up and they hand me a harp and I'm like, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. It's probably symbolic, but if I could roll into heaven and know how to play the harp, I'm down for that. I even made a note that I wrote, I'm down for this right here on my sermon notes. I'm excited about that idea. But here's this song, and the song contains language from the Old Testament, Psalm 111, 2 and 3, Deuteronomy 32, 4, Jeremiah 10, 7, Psalm uh, 86, 9 and 98, 2, lots of Old Testament language. In fact, every line in this is connected probably to the Old Testament in some way. But I want to turn your attention to Moses. This, This is the song of Moses. There's a song at the end of uh, Moses' life. I had forgotten this until studying for this sermon, but there's this song at the end of Moses' life. He knows he's you know, going to not see the promised land. In and, and Deuteronomy 32, he, he sings this beautiful song. You should read that, but probably more to the point here is Exodus 15. There's this song sang by Moses and the Israelite people, and it happens right after God sets them free from the oppression, the slavery uh, of the Egyptian people. If you don't know the story, God sends a series of plagues. Uh, after the final plague, Israelites go out into the wilderness. They cross the Red Sea. Uh, it parts for them, so they cross the Red Sea. The sea pours back in on top of the Egyptian soldiers who are chasing them, and then they sing a song. They sing a song. And so what happens here is, is that God, through the author John, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is showing us some similarities between these scenes and reminding us that we have a picture of what it looks like for God's people to be victorious. They were oppressed, they weren't free, they were persecuted, and God took them by his mighty power out of that oppression and set them free and took them into eventually the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey, that was a great land, that was a ripe land, that was a good land. And that's what will happen for us too. We see Moses in the sea, by the way. You see that there? There's fire in the wilderness for the, uh, the Israelite people where God's presence is leading them along. And we see a duplication of that here. What it's saying is you'll have your own exodus. And it's a far greater exodus than Moses and the Israelites could have ever experienced on this earth. And by the way, we saw a couple weeks ago, it calls for a new song. Robert Mounts again says, the theme of victory in Exodus 15 becomes the basis for praise and adoration in the song of the victors. God is worthy of glory and honor because his great and marvelous works are true and righteous. The song does not celebrate the judgment of God upon his enemies, but the righteousness of his great redemptive acts. In eternity, when we feel the feeling of final victory, we will praise God. God for giving us that victory through the blood of the Lamb. I just want to just briefly turn your attention to some of these words that they sing. I think they're important. Great and marvelous are your deeds. They sing about the greatness of God's work. I've already talked about the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the story that Jesus came and suffered and died for our sins. And surely for these people, that is at the forefront of their minds when they sing about the greatness of God's works. But I even think that when we get to heaven, we know about that great work of God, but we'll see how God did so many other things in our lives that we never even thought about while we're here. And we will praise him for that, for bringing us along safely, for protecting us by his mighty and righteous right hand 
as it says in the book of Isaiah. So we will celebrate the work of God. They give God the title, Lord God Almighty. They sing about the greatness of God's attributes. They recognize what, they re- what Revelation recognizes other places, uh, that God is almighty, that he is totally in control, that he is sovereign above all. And you know, we, we believe that as Christians today, but sometimes we don't feel that. We think like, well, God's pretty much in control, but is he really you know, taking care of this situation? But when we sit on that glassy sea, we will recognize that God had us all the time. They say, true and just are your ways. They not only sing about the greatness of God's work, but they sing about the goodness of God's character. True and just are your ways. I'll borrow this line again. Our God is not safe, but he is good, right? He is mighty. He is holy. He is in control. He can punish who he wants to punish, but at the same time, he is good, and he's going to do good things in the life of those who are victorious for eternity. Who will not fear and bring glory to your name, they say, and all nations will come and worship before you. They recognize that someday God will have the worship of the nations. The question is whether or not people will worship him now or when it's too late. Because those who fall on their faces before God after he comes to set up his final judgment, it will be too late for them. And we know where they're going to go. It's going to be hell. They're going to suffer hell. They're going to suffer eternal death. But for those who choose to worship him now, we'll go to eternal life. We'll have eternal life. We have it even now. But everybody eventually will recognize that God is real, that God is good, and that God offered the gift of salvation to each and every person. Listen to Philippians 2 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will happen. People that say, I will never believe in God. I will never worship God. They're wrong. They will eventually and it will be too late if they don't choose to do it before he comes again. And then they declare, you alone are holy. It's a way of saying that he is uniquely better than us. Better in his character and nature and better in his power and attributes. He is not like us. He is perfect in his holiness and he is perfect in his almightiness. He knows all. He sees all. He can do all. We can't. And yet he is perfectly good and perfectly loving and perfectly kind. He is all the things that we are striving to be. And we try to be like God in some of those things, right? We try to be like God in his, his character. We strive for that. But we'll never be like him in his, you know, all-knowingness and all-powerfulness and his ability to be present everywhere. And so these victors sing this song recognizing, if I could sum it up, the character and nature of God and all that he has done on their behalf. And in it, they teach us that we should do the same now. The victory is certain, right? Like, I mean, think about that, guys. The victory is certain. And so this isn't something that we need to begin, you know, when we get to the pearly gates. This is something that we begin now. We, we celebrate the victory that he's won on our behalf. We celebrate, we celebrate who he is and what he has done for us. And by the way, we can do this because he is God and he keeps his promises. 
You know, I was so arrogant in high school. <laughs> I'm going to go back to one more story. That same Beaverton game, we won in overtime. And um, I like telling you this part too, but uh, we had the final possession uh, at the end of regulation. And uh, my coach drew up a play for me. That's the part I like telling you. Uh, one shot to make the state tournament. And he drew up a play for me. And I walked out to the referee. And I said to the referee, I'm about to be a hero. That's what I said to him. And guess what happened? I was fouled and he didn't call it. I got what was coming to me. I have the video. You want to watch it. You'll believe me. But I was so certain in what was going to happen. And here's the deal. Certainty in ourselves is misplaced certainty, right? Like there was a chance I was going to be a hero. I would have if he would have called the foul. But God, we can be certain in our certainty of him because he is almighty and his works are perfect. one more verse a couple more verses here i want to read them to you revelation 15 5 through 7 after this i looked and i saw in heaven the temple that is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was opened out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues they were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of god who lives forever and ever I want to stop you there and just say, look, here's the deal. We see these golden bulls, and the next passage we're going to look at, there's wrath being poured out. But what we need to recognize here is that these angels are dressed like priests, and where are they coming from? They're coming from more literally the tent of testimony. This is the place where the Ten Commandments were stored, and they're coming from the temple. And when we've seen this, the altar and the temple language in the book of Revelation, it's connected to, it's connected to our prayers. And the wrath that is going to come, it's like God wants you to see one more time. It's, it's him reminding you that he is going to make things right, that he hears your prayers. And I've said this before, and I need to say it again, that for many of us who live in modern day America, we don't feel the hurt and the persecution that we could, that people do all around the world right? Like people are suffering and dying for being Christians. We just had it like, you know, a summer and a half ago, like in Afghanistan, right? Like there was a, just a mass persecution of Christians all of a sudden. They were fleeing. They were trying to get out. And for people that suffer like that, or these first century people who were going to be killed maybe if they didn't worship the emperor, it's really good for them to know. It's really good for us to know if it ever comes upon us that when God brings this punishment, he's doing it to bring justice for us because we are hurting and we are suffering. He's going to put an end to it. And so our prayers, they get to heaven. He hears them. He knows what you're going through. He knows your struggles and he's going to respond. And then in verse eight, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of seven angels were completed. The Old Testament tells of a few occasions where the smoke of God's glory filled a place. We see it at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. Uh, and then, that, and fr frankly, this might be the closest uh, connection to our passage. Why? Because it happens just after the Exodus, right? Now there's this scene where there's smoke and God is present. Um, but I thought of immediately 1 Kings 8. And in this story, it's like the dedication of the first temple. You might know that the guy named David, 
the most famous king in Israel's history. Uh, he wanted to build a temple for God, but God says, you're a warrior, there's blood on your hands. So his son builds this temple, and, and when they're dedicating this temple, uh, smoke fills the place. Listen to 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, this is a big statement about God's glory. We've seen a statement about God's holiness, which is all that makes God uniquely better than us. And here we see glory, which is really the manifestation of all that makes God's God uniquely better than us. It's the way he shows it, and he fills up this temple with smoke. And I, I want to say that as we think about our eternal experience, so much of it will be centered on the presence of God. At our church, you know, the goal, the way we talk about what we want to do when we talk about church is that we want to help people experience and express God's glory now. It's because we serve a holy God who is meant to be expressed in our attitudes and our actions and our words and we're meant to experience him through prayer and through our gathering together and through our singing and through our relationships. We are meant to experience and express God's glory and we will do that in eternity. Here's the deal, everybody. Someday the battle for our souls will be decided and we who are Christians will be winners. Some will be lost, but we who are Christians will be winners. If you're not a Christian, I want you to come to our team. I want you to be on our side, right? I want you to join into this party someday and you can do that by accepting what Jesus did for you on the cross, by believing that the lamb's blood was shed so that you might be saved from the sins that you and I both know you have committed. That's what Jesus did for me. I felt when I was 17 years old, just the wretchedness of my own life. And Jesus said, hey, I died for that. And I felt that weight and I committed to him and I've never regretted it. I want you to do it too. And for those who are Christians, man, I hope that this, this idea of victory will compel you to live for him now. I thought about this this week. Sometimes when you show up to church, I know this, I know this, you want like these very practical, here, here's seven steps to parent better or seven steps to, you know, break that addiction or whatever it might be. But I hope, I hope as we've moved through this book that you have just felt compelled to live differently in every area of life because you recognize the magnitude of what God has done on your behalf. In the last couple of years, I've been really convicted that I should preach the gospel more to Christians. Because while we, while we believe in what I've just described about what Jesus did for us, sometimes we put it on the back burner of our lives and we just keep living. And I think it's important to show up here each Sunday. And even if there was not one single non-Christian who would listen to my sermon, I'd want to remind us, look what Jesus has done for us. It should compel us to live differently in every area of our lives. Yeah, it should compel us to live differently in our parenting and at work. It should just enrapture us in every single way. And here, as we talk about the victory of Jesus, it's not like, here's three different things different things you go do in details of your life it's like look you're going to have victory someday and so carry on now doing your best to live for the one who gave you that victory let me pray that you will lord jesus i thank you that we that we win and it's not because we try harder or strive more it's because you came to earth and you played the perfect game you did everything right lord and at the end you suffered and you died, you lost, you gave everything, Lord.
But we know that you didn't lose for very long because on the third day you rose again, you conquered sin and death. And that, God, when we come to believe in your death and resurrection, when we come to believe that, we, we die with you and we rise with you and we know that the victory is certain. And so I pray, God, for any person here, any person watching online that, that hasn't come to know the victory that you will give, that they would give their lives to you right now, that they would believe that you suffered and died on their behalf half and they would commit themselves to you God and for those of us who are Christians I pray that we would remember that we will have victory and as we think about the eternal victory that is so secure that we God would live differently because of it that when people mock us or make fun of us or or, or um or are a little bit you know treat us a little bit differently a little more negatively because of our faith that we would just keep serving you that when it's hard like at Thanksgiving to, to live like a, a Christmas or any holiday to live like a Christian because nobody around us is doing it, that we'd keep doing it. That Lord, in our parenting, an example that I've already mentioned, when it's just so much easier just to be like every other parent, we would take the time and put the effort in to teach our kids about you, Lord, and, and to treat them as you would want us to be treated. In our marriages, Lord, I pray, that we would try to be a picture of this gospel because you use marriage as a metaphor for what you did for us and how you relate to us who are Christians, Lord. And so we would work to be sacrificial in our marriages and giving in our marriages and we would be quick to say I'm sorry and quick to forgive all because, Lord, we're compelled by the idea that eventually we will have eternal victory and all of our relationships will be right and we will be proved true and we will be made perfect because of you. And so, Lord, let the victory that is eternal and certain compel us to keep serving you when it's hard. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.